was one of those students in school that would actually read the assignments in literature class, in English class. I, I, I did it for no other reason because the teacher told me to. I, uh, I learned fairly quick that things go better if I just do my homework, if I uh, just out of sheer sense of duty did my homework. And so, yeah, they give you a 200-page book. All right, I guess I'm going to read this 200-page book uh, and all the other books they would give me. And sometimes I enjoyed it. Sometimes I suffered through it and endured it. But one of the things that happened is as I did that, I, I grew to love stories. And I saw that some of the best stories had similar themes in them. And I, one of my most uh, favorite books that I, I read in, in school, in high school, was The Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. And I've come to love a lot of Charles Dickens' uh, books, his novels. He, he wrote them as a believer. And uh, he had a, a story to tell, and it's amazing, as I read it, I never uh, encountered in literature up until that time someone that had such a Christ-like figure uh, in his story, I've learned since then that most books will have a Christ-like hero. Or that will bring out some nuance of the gospel. Whether it's the, the, the idea that man is both good and bad. Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what would it look like if we just had all evil and all good. Or, or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, and we, we see these truths brought out in the stories but and Charles Dickens it has this, this character that these two men that seem to be uh, condemned to die in the midst of the French Revolution and some things were were mistaken and misunderstood in, in this but nonetheless the condemnation was there but these there was two men that uh, one looked amazingly uh, like one another they were almost like twins they were not but they had a, a, an eerie uh, resemblance with one another and, and the problem was that both men loved the same woman but the woman loved only one of them. And this man that uh, did not have the love of the woman loved the woman so much. But basically said to this man, his, his lookalike, you go. We'll provide a way for you of escape. I will take your death. Because we look alike anyway, it will work. And the man was just shocked by this act, and he responds by saying, it is a far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I've ever known. This, this sense of love that comes as a sacrifice. And just when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, and I still, I mean, 20 some years later, I still will not forget that line because it echoes the gospel. And I just want to encourage you, we are story beings, we have a, a birth, a beginning, a, a, a duration, and we have an end. We understand life as a story because we live in chronology, we live in time. And so stories resonate with us, and I just want to encourage you, challenge you, think through some of the best stories and see how they reflect the gospel. And I believe they reflect the gospel because God made us for His story, that He is still writing. And we want a part of that. And one of the, the climaxes of it, as, as we think about Charles Darnay and Tale of Two Cities, one of the climaxes of this in history is Jesus on the cross. And Jesus is alluding to that in John chapter 3. And so I want to share with you part two, the truth about salvation. 
when we talk about salvation, what exactly are we talking about? Uh, and so we've looked at the truth about, uh, about the Bible, truth about the Word, uh, truth about God the Father, truth about God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, truth about the Trinity, truth about mankind. Last week, the truth about salvation, how God bridges the difference between mankind and Himself. Uh, and we looked at this and we saw the necessity of a new birth in John chapter 3. Uh, we, we saw that it was required, it doesn't really matter the education, it doesn't require the moral life that we've got. We've got this Pharisee that has great education, is a uh, moral man, has the structure there, but yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. There's necessity of this, but then we saw the spiritual source of this new birth, that this is something done through the Holy Spirit. God does this. We respond. We are passive, but yet it's God working in us to give us this new life. And then we saw the mysterious nature of this new birth, of the mixture of God's doing it and yet our response to this. And so we really just got to the beginning part of John chapter 3. And so I'm going to ask you to go in your Bibles again to John chapter 3 uh, as we're going to look primarily at the last part of this. Uh, and so let's stand as we read this together. I'm going to begin actually with the last bit of chapter 2. Because we saw how John 3 is an answer to verse 23 through 25 of John 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Oh my goodness, what do we do with that? God knows what's in your heart and doesn't trust himself to you because you're not trusting him. So what does that look like? Well, here's example number one, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, I believe he's representing other Pharisees and kind of a, uh, uh, looking at some kind of backdoor politi- political uh, connection here. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one does do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, calls him teacher, God's with you. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his, to his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's referencing Ezekiel at this point. And then, going on, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear, hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered them, Are you the teacher of the Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You may be seated. So you notice this phrase he keeps repeating, truly, truly. He says it like three different times, and he's saying basically a way of getting his attention. It's not that Jesus normally says false things as a way of saying, let me get your attention, Nicodemus. Um, And we looked at, just looking at the dialogue structure, Jesus is doing most of the talking. Every once in a while, Nicodemus starts talking, and Jesus interrupts him. And, And as you watch... Nicodemus' words get fewer and fewer until the last time it's like uh, five words. And Jesus, boom, starts talking again. Like, Nicodemus, you need to stop talking. You need to listen to what I'm telling you. Truly, truly. It, it, it was kind of like my mom's way of saying to me, if, I, if she wanted to get my attention, she'd said, Jared Shannon? And it was like, okay, uh, that's, uh, she's about to say something. And I've noticed she does it to my, my sons, and I realize what she's doing now, because Shannon was my dad's name. Uh, so my son, uh, Evan, Shannon, and then Canaan, Jared, and I've seen Grandma now do it to them, and I'm realizing now that what she's doing isn't just getting their attention, but blaming Dad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, I see what you're doing, Mom. You're, you're, just, you're calling me out through them. Uh, so evidently that's what she was doing all along, and I didn't realize it until I had my own kids. Uh, but she's getting, getting the attention. So Jesus is saying, truly, truly, Nicodemus, pay attention here. You say you're a teacher, but yet you don't know these things. And so, in that, he, he goes, and in, in, in the latter part of this, beginning with 13, 14, 15, Jesus is saying, let me give you a little bit of the Old Testament here. You master of the Old Testament, you teacher of Israel. And he, he's quoting the story found in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, really, primarily verse 8 and 9. And so... What I want you to see is Jesus is giving the preview of the cross right here. When he says this in verse uh, 13, 14, 15, he says, I'm going to give you a preview. A foreshadowing, if you will. Every good, a lot of good stories have foreshadowing. And Jesus is saying, here's some foreshadowing that was giving way a long time ago. You see, this thing on the cross was not just a, a backup plan. It was God's primary plan right from the get-go. And it's given all throughout the shadows pointing to Jesus. And so he talks about this story in Numbers 21 where the people were complaining, the people of Israel leaving Egypt, going to the promised land, but they were complaining against God. And in their bitterness, their complaint, do you, un- listen, I want you to understand that when you complain, you are not complaining just about life. Are you not just complaining about your kids or your parents or you're complaining about your spouse or your boss? You're actually complaining against God. You're complaining to God. You're like, no, I'm not complaining to my husband. I'm complaining to my, complaining to my wife. No, God is over all things. And so ultimately all these complaints go to God. And so God is hearing the people complain about food. Something so mundane, right? But yet you live by it. You're complaining about food, and God says, that's it. I've had it. There is an end to my mercy, and to let them feel the consequences of their sin. And, and so Numbers 21 has these uh, poisonous serpents coming in. 
and they're starting biting people. Uh, and with the bite is a lethal injection where they quickly die. <coughs> That's, that'll get your attention, right? Uh, so uh, people are, are, are dying all throughout the camp. All of this is, is part of the judgment of disobeying God and not going into the promised land. And so Jesus is re- remembering the story. He says, remember what Moses did in verse 14? Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And so he, God told Moses to make a bronze serpent. He was going to give mercy to the people. And he said, Get, make this bronze, brazen serpent, this bronze serpent, and put it on a pole. And put it up there. And tell the people that if they will look to this bronze serpent, just look upon, upon it, they will be healed. And so that's exactly what Moses did. And so Jesus says, you know that story, Nicodemus? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Of all the things that Jesus brings out, he says, that bronze serpent, that's me. That's, that's Jesus. Is a preview of what's going to happen on the cross. Nicodemus will witness that event eventually. In fact, we learn Nicodemus was one who anointed the body of Jesus with his spices and put him with Joseph of Arimathea in Joseph's grave. Nicodemus was there. I wonder if he thought about this story when he sees Jesus on the cross. I believe he might have. So just imagine that moment. We learned in John 2 that there were many people who believed in the signs of Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. And we saw last week that belief that isn't a surrendering faith, Uh, surrendering faith is nothing more than demonic faith because in james chapter 2 19 says that the demons even believe and tremble there's got to be more than just believing some things about jesus that jesus can do mighty things that's where the people were but they did not surrender they didn't have a surrendering faith so jesus did not entrust himself to them here john tells us the story of Nicodemus that evidently was like that. And Jesus is saying, look, you believe some things about me, but you're going to believe more than I'm just a man from God. You're going to believe that I'm God in flesh. And you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to surrender this to me. So just imagine, if you will, if you are a mom, if you're a father in, in, in Israel, and you're going through the wilderness, you're going through the des- desert area, and then there's these, these, this fear of snakes. And you're, right now we're dealing with the beginning of the fear of mosquitoes. Yeah, it's starting to come out. It's like, oh, okay, I don't want that. Let me make sure I got some bug spray going on. It was found, I think there was a case found in Wake County just this past week. Uh, And so we understand what that fear is like. Can you imagine the fear there among the Israelites of snakes, of all things, you know? There's one thing mosquitoes, but snakes is like a whole nother level of fear, I'm just saying, you know? And they're, you know, like, did we come into a viper's nest? And, and so here you've got your little child, and just like children do, they're playing, and they get bit by one of these venomous snakes. And, and you're thinking, they're going to go the way of every person that's been bit. They're going to die. And you can see whatever the effects of this poison might be as it goes upon the skin, as it creeps upon the body and seems takes over this little child. And you're thinking, what can I do? And you go to the only leader you've got that's overall, and that's Moses. Moses, here, what can I do? And Moses says to you, 
God has made a way. You understand that these snakes are, are consequences of our bitterness, of our sin, of our complaining and murmuring against God. But God has had mercy in us still, and he's made a way for us. There is a bronze serpent that he has told me. He is upon the pole. If you will go to that serpent, that bronze serpent, look upon that bronze serpent. There would be healing. What would you be thinking as a mother, as a father in that case? Now, Moses, I don't see the connection. How does looking upon something going to heal much? I mean, after all, I've got my, my array of oils. I've got frankincense. I've got, I've got my myrrh. I mean, if I put these oils on, then maybe, I mean, that makes sense. I, I've got my herbs I can drink. I've, I've got maybe, can you cut them? Can you bleed them? Can, you've got all your science, your mind telling you what things work. But Moses says, that's not what God has said. Will you trust what God has said? Because all hope is lost, and you've tried the oils, you've tried the herbs, and they're not working, and every child you know has died. Other adults have died. You take that child, and you bring them to that bronze serpent, and you just say to that child, look at the bronze serpent. Just look. Trust what God has said. And as that child looks, healing comes upon the body. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So now let's look at the power of the cross. The power of the cross is that Whoever believes in him, this is to say they will trust in what God has said would heal you. Will you trust in that? That believing in him, to be persuaded of, to place confidence in this. It's, it's not the kind of faith, but it's the object of the faith that matters here. Nicodemus is persuaded by teaching and a miracle, while a Samaritan woman was persuaded by the knowledge of her sin. But both of them will soon accept it as real, as true, and to trust in should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is not the quantity. Sometimes we think eternal life is, is quantity. It's is that you, you go on day after day after day with days and no end. <laughs> that blows our mind enough, right? Quantity. But it doesn't quite satisfy our heart, does it? Because, you know, we've seen numbers of days and not all of them are good. And think, well, it needs to be more than just day after day after day. It's not just the quantity of life when it talks about eternity, eternal life. It is the quality of life. In fact, Jesus defines John and John 17, verse 3. What is eternal life? John 17, 3, Jesus said this. This is eternal life, that they know God and Jesus Christ. So when we talk about eternal life, when Jesus talks about eternal life, it's not just that you don't die. It's that in the life that you know, in the days that you spend, in the time that you have, there is a relationship with God that grows you, that thrives within you, that gives you hope and nourishment and satisfaction. A relationship that is so all-consuming that it allows you to be yourself, but a more beautiful self, because you know Him, and gives you purpose and hope that has no end. 
So what I mean by that, what Jesus means when he says eternal life, it's not just happens when your heart stops beating. Eternal life begins the moment you're alive in relationship to God. The moment the Spirit of God bursts within you a new heart, a new desire that continues on. And that life becomes so strong that even a heartbeat that stops doesn't stop it. We have just a number of days to experience God. Experience Jesus Christ. To know eternal life. We don't know how many numbers of days it'll be. I just read about this past week of a country singer who was 40 years old and died of cervical cancer. I'm thinking, she's younger than me. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Not? Those of you younger, you hadn't experienced it. You will. It won't be long. You just have a number of days, and in those numbers of days, to experience eternal life. That goes beyond the number of your days. And so he says, if you believe in him, you should not perish but have eternal life. And so the power of the cross is not the power of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. The power of the cross. I can say to you, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to go away and I'll be gone for two weeks. Maybe uh, we've had experiences like this where I've gone on a mission trip or other places and and I can say to you, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go. And you say, well, what, what, are you gonna, what about your wife? I said, well, my, you know, my wife's going to be here at the house. And um, just, she'll be taking care of the kids. And so, you, so you're going to leave your wife alone? Yeah, yeah. You're not worried about her committing adultery or um, being unfaithful to you? No, I hadn't crossed my mind. You must have great faith. Is that the right response? No. It's not that I have great faith. I have a great wife. That's the difference, right? You see, it's, it's not my faith. It's the object of the faith that matters. So when we talk about eternal life, what Jesus is saying is like, you mean you're going you're to believe in Jesus Christ? You must have great faith to think that you're going to have eternal life and that when you die that you're going to be with God in, in heaven. No, you don't have great faith. You have a great Savior. That's the point. It's the, the power of the cross. But listen, there's two edges to this. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Did you catch the two edges, what's implied about that? We, we focus rightfully so on the eternal life aspect, because that's where we want to be. But what's implied? There's a perishing. There is a condemnation. You, you see this in, in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. We read this verse and we think, you know, I'd like, Pastor, for you to talk about a loving God. I mean, I, that's, it gives me hope. It gives me strength. I, I don't want to worship a condemning God. That's not my God. You ever hear things like this? It's the craziest talk. As if you can make God. <laughs> if you can make God, then what's the point? You're God. You know, God is as he is. It's our job to adjust him. But, but listen, how do you get this notion of a loving God? Where does that come from anyway? The notion of a loving God. It doesn't come from the Quran. I can tell you that. 
This notion of a loving God isn't from, from the Buddhist, script, Buddhist writings. It, it's the loving God is unique from the Christian faith. Do you know how society was before the Christians had influence of society? It was survival of the fittest. Slavery was normal. Why does slavery strike us as strange today? Because the influence of the Christian teaching in society. Up until the the prevalence of the Christian thought, it was perfectly normal for whatever the strongest clan, strongest tribe was to go and conquer, and the rest would be your slaves, and that was mercy. Because you didn't wipe them out. Read your history. That's where we come from as a society. So this idea of a loving God is born out of scriptures themselves. But listen, if you're going to get it from scriptures, you're going to get the entirety of scriptures. Not just the loving aspect, but also the justice of God. There is, every society longs for justice. Have you seen that? There is unrest when there is corrupt government, and there is always a sense that ought not to be. Why? Because within our hearts there is a cry for what is just. That also comes from scriptures. And so here you have in John 3 this marrying of the the condemnation of God and the love of God, and they come together. The problem is that we think condemnation like we think of of it from our parents or from us. So how does that work? (laughs) Come on, parents, be honest. That's it. you done it for the last time. Bam, you lay down the hammer, whatever the hammer might be. And what's that motivated by? Child, you are embarrassing me. I mean, we are here in the grocery store and you do that? You know, that, that's, right? It's, it's, we think of condemnation, we think of wrath like that from our parents. That's usually just born out of frustration. But, you know, if you look at just even the government says of, of a settled, a settled condemnation, a settled decision... To not let the wrong prevail. A settled decision to not let the wrong prevail. To not let selfishness prevail. Settled In government, if there's a settled decision that corruption is wrong, it doesn't really matter if the one in power is liked by the, the, the judge. A just judge will say, I like you, I love you, in fact, but there still is a settled decision. You must face the consequences. And our heart rejoices in that. Because we know that the right is prevailing and it doesn't really matter whether it's, it's uh, partial. You see, what God is doing is a settled decision. Not letting the wrong prevail. And he does it because he loves. You see, the opposite of love is not anger. For instance, you see people you love and you see them making self-destructive decisions. Does it not happen sometimes when you see that, you get angry? You get angry. Don't let, no, don't go down the decision of drugs. Don't you see that every time you're taking these drugs or you you get consumed by alcohol and you become an alcoholic or, or whatever it may be, you see that and you see them, you're slowly losing them. And it's like they can't see it from themselves, but because you love them, you're angry. Perhaps we do this with cancer. 
We get angry at cancer. We get angry at sin. Or we get angry at disease because it's destroying them. The opposite of love is not anger. We get angry at our kids, sometimes at the, at the healthiest, when we see them making destructive decisions that we know will ruin them. The opposite of love is indifference. Just don't care. Whatever. So here on the cross, you've got condemnation and you've got eternal life. And it's a choice. By the cross, both are going out. Condemnation and eternal life are going. So in the cross, you've got this marrying of the two. And what side we fall on is determined on what we do with Jesus. Look at the passion of the cross. For God so loved. So loved. The word so expresses the degree of love. The giving of a son gives definition to the degree of love. What was the degree of love? How did he do this? Well, it's so loved that he gave his son. In this way, God loved us. So it speaks to the motivation of salvation to satisfy his infinite love for the lost. That he gave his only begotten son, his one of kind, his unique son, that whoever believes should not perish. So this surrendering trust. There's a story of a, of a missionary by the name of Morse that was working in India and he was working with a Hindu man. And the Hindu man, they had a deep friendship with, with him. And, and one day the Hindu man came to him. He was getting ready to, to crawl to Delhi with the hopes of finding some means of salvation for his life. Before doing that, he came to this missionary by the name of Morse and said to him, I, I want to give you this box before I go on this journey. And then this box was the most beautiful pearl he'd ever seen. <laughs> and then the Hindu man said, you need to understand that this pearl came because of my son. I once had a son who died. And he was a pearl diver. And one time he went pearl diving and he was under too long. And they retrieved his body, but he could not survive the consequences. But in his hand was this beautiful pearl. I've carried this pearl now. I've kept it for generations, or for, for decades. And I want to give it to you, my dear friend. Morse was shocked, humbled, and said, I, I cannot just receive this gift. Let, please let me pay you or let me work for this is too precious let me let me work for that and and so the hindu man was stunned at this and and just stiffened and said there's no way there's no way you can pay for this you see this is so this is the the blood of my son this is his death you can't pay me for this i can only give it to you it's the only way because i cannot cheapen my son Morse was starting to understand and grabbed his hands and grabbed the gift and tears in his eyes. And it kind of came to him what was going on. He said, do you not see? This is what Jesus is doing for you. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot crawl 
to Delhi and think that will impress God. His gift of his son Jesus is too precious. He's giving eternal life and you cannot cheapen it by earning it. By working hard to try to impress God. It is a gift and as such it's so precious that if you live to be a thousand years you can never earn this. There must be humility to receive this. The Hindu man finally grasps and says, Sahib, I understand now. I want this, Jesus. I will not earn it. You see, when he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, stop trying to work for it. The Christian faith is utterly new, and that is the only thing that tells us God has made a way that if you will just trust Him, stop trying to earn His love. He cannot, He will not love you more than He does right now. You can't make Him love you. His love is perfect, which means there is no change to it, and He will not love you any less. That is the gospel. This is the passion of the cross. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, perish to destroy fully. You incur the loss of true eternal life. But you'll have instead everlasting life. It's been said that God, looking at the breakdown of this verse, God is the greatest lover. When you read this. So loved the greatest degree the world the greatest number that he gave which is the greatest act you can do his only begotten son which is the greatest gift that whosoever giving us the greatest invitation would believe with the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, should not perish, giving us the greatest deliverance, but giving us the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession, to know the great God, who you were made for, long for, the Trinity God, God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, who through Jesus invites us into the dance that's been going on for eternity and says, I want you in so you might know the same joy that we might know, that you might know the same love that the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit have known, that you might have the same union with us. Bringing us in. And how does this happen? How does the broken, fallen, created man get into the still perfect, forever trinity love? It was through the great expression of love of Jesus Christ. Where simply on the cross, Jesus is saying to us, by God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, says to you, may I have this dance. Join in with me. Follow my lead as I direct you leads you and understand in every movement that we make some you may not like but in every movement that's made it is done with trust in my love and so 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The potential of the cross. The sent out one, his son. You need to understand that because we are born into this world and born into a fallen nature that we have inherited, we are born condemned already. Why? In our heart, in our life, is that disease that destroys us. It is the rebellion against God. Basically, from the get-go, we say, the rights that belong to God, I've got them. I determine my own destiny. I am the captain of my fate. No one can tell me what to do or say. We take the prerogative that only belongs to God. And God, knowing that he wants us to experience the greatest joy, which is found in himself, hates that sin because it ruins us. And he simply gives us what we deserve. Do you understand that life is a consequence of our, our sin? Sometimes we think, you know, man, I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat on my taxes. We're sinning. We're disobeying God. And then we're fearful of April 16th. Man, am I going to get in a car accident? Maybe I'm going to get... <laughs> we, sometimes we think that God's going to judge this incident. Can you imagine that? What if every time you lied, you gained 15 pounds? <laughs> someone, how many of us would stop lying? But you wouldn't fear God. You'd fear the 15 pounds. You'd fear the, the punishment. See, God works by just giving us natural consequences. We don't think, oh, he's just going to pop me the next day. No, he's like, okay, I'm going to let you, all right, I'll let you deal with that. I'll let you deal with the lie. I get you, I'll let you deal with the fact that now you live two worlds because you've got stuff you do in secret and you have to use your burden, use your energy, use your anxiety, use your, your strength to try to sustain two worlds and when God's only made you for one. That's your consequence. It's interesting how life is made with all these natural consequences when we live in sin. We live under condemnation. You see, for those of us who do not have the Spirit of God born in us, it is just a matter of going from death to death. And the best we've got in this life is the little glimpses of heaven, the glimpses of God, things of relationship, things of joy, things of this creation of nature, things that have some sense of satisfaction, but there's always a goodbye, there's always a the end in this life. That's the best we've got. And as life goes on, those things get less and less and less. Before long, you're living an old, cold life where you're thinking, how can I occupy my time? What things can I do to keep my mind entertained? That's not eternal life. If that's where you're at, and I would suggest that somewhere in your mind you have divorced yourself from God, of that being your passion and joy. Being bored does not cross the lips of those who are pursuing Christ. The potential of the cross. And then he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. The persuasion of the cross. 
Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If we do not have the Spirit of God born in our life, we are as the walking dead. I think that one reason why zombies and that literature is so prevalent is because perhaps maybe it's describing life. There is a sense of us walking dead. Which is as God describes us. That if we're not born in the spirit, we're zombies. Just a matter of time before our body catches up with our spirit. Is that us? He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I would just encourage you, you do not have to be there. You can know Jesus as your Savior. And it goes the same way Jesus told Nicodemus, look unto Jesus. He's not plan B of several plans. It is as if God is saying to you, you are running out of air, let me give you an oxygen mask. Will you receive it? It's done through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.